0: No, I have great pleasure in introducing you to Mary Stuart Adams. Um, she'll be talking on the importance of finding light in the sacred dark. And of course, this is a reference to her wonderful service in advocating for dark skies around the world. Um, she has a, a lovely description, um, being a star lore historian. And I'm sure we're going to hear that expressed today. And she also presents weekly a program on the, is it Interlochen? Interlochen Interlochen Public Radio, The Storyteller's Night Sky. She does a lot else, but I'm sure she'll tell us as she goes along. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
1: This one, oh this one is live. Thank you. Thank you for creating such sacred space. Um, I'd like to qualify this title, Star Lore Historian, which I assigned to myself out of the struggle to give word to what I was doing and explain it to others. When you teach about the night sky from the humanities and not from the discipline, the scientific discipline of astronomy, it's difficult to get others to understand what you mean and why you're doing it. And so a star lore historian for me is someone who relates the story of humanity using the stars as the arena, you could say, for giving expression to how humanity views and understands itself. And right now the the tagline I have there, restoring the mythic grandeur of knowing the stars, is motivated by the experience we can have when we look through history at how uh, striving to know the stars has really inspired some of the highest achievements throughout the course of human history, architecturally, artistically, in literature, in civic organization, in religious observance, the striving to know the human relationship to the stars has resulted in some magnificent work. And so the picture in the backdrop is from my home on the shores of Lake Michigan, and it is an attempt to capture an expression of light that is there but for a moment. The sun was setting, and the waves crashing up on Lake Michigan and then receding and trying to catch the reflection of the light on the sand before the next wave crested and cast a a shadow into that same spot. And also to speak specifically to the title, Seeking to Find the Light in the Sacred Dark. There is a very important um, experience in starlight in that apart from our sun, the stars do not diminish the dark through which they shine. And this, I think, belies a relationship to something that's necessary in our consciousness, a becoming that oftentimes will find us, you could say, in the dark. And our associations culturally with darkness can border on fear and it being something that we need to do away with. And at least as far back as the reign of Louis XIV in France, there was the idea that in order to bring security and safety into urban environments, we need to light up the night. We need to get rid of the dark in order to find safety. And this is a big issue now here in the 21st century, where mainly in urban environments, but in small communities across the country and around the world, most people are now living with so much light pollution that they can no longer see the stars at night. Sure, some of the brightest stars but not this array of magnificence that should be available to us every night. The statistic in the United States is that almost two-thirds of the residents of the U.S. live now where they can't see most of the stars, and that one-third of all the light that's used at night is actually being wasted because it's spilling up into the sky where it's not needed. Light that goes up doesn't illuminate anything. It diminishes our ability to see. The International Dark Sky Association in Tucson, Arizona, estimates that that one third of light that's being wasted is costing us over $3 billion a year. And it's not just the fact that we as human beings are losing our sight of the stars. It's the resources that we're digging up out of the Earth in order to generate the energy to turn on those lights, and then we're spilling it up. We now know that we're having an adverse effect on habitat for many of the creatures with with which we share the Earth, there is a, a demonstrated effect in the human circadian rhythm. Overexposure to artificial light, both by day and especially at night, is interfering with healthy sleep patterns. And you could say, okay, too bad, human being, you're not sleeping, although sleep disorder is related to every major illness that plagues our population. So very quickly we move away from the idea that I wish I could see the stars, too. We're having an effect on habitat. We are mismanaging our natural resources, and we are affecting our own health and well-being. Coupled with that, the word in the English language, disaster, literally means separation from the stars. Dis-separation from aster star. A disaster is a separation from the stars. So I have assigned myself the task of speaking for the humanities in this knowing of the stars. So I'm going to take us a little bit on a journey, and I have to build historical context to get there. This is my, right? So we'll get to our first slide. If you Google what is the universe, this is the definition, one of the definitions that you'll bump into. The universe is all of space and time and their contents, including planets, stars, galaxies, and all other forms of matter and energy. While the spatial size of the entire universe is still unknown, it is possible to measure the observable universe. So this is an attempt to give a very tangible definition. It Doesn't give any description of what might be at the center, but it's really confined by the idea that the universe exists within time and space. These are difficult concepts to describe when we move beyond the idea of time and space. So this is the accepted definition of the universe now. But if we go back several centuries to the time of Plotinus, in the second century, we get this description. The universe extends as far as the soul goes, but no further. The boundaries of its existence are determined by the degree to which, in going forth, it has the soul to keep it in being. So that what we experience, at least in this second century perspective, as that world that seems to be outside us, is actually the most intimate within us. This is coming from a period of time when it was understood that the human being lived at the center, not necessarily physically in time and space, but at the center of the attention of a living cosmos, on a living planet, in a relationship that was born in harmony. And human beings creating out of this time sought to represent an understanding of that harmony. So between. This second century description by Plotinus and the earlier one that I grabbed off of Google, a lot changed in our concept about our place in the time space. So we're gonna take a little journey through that. And I need to start with by referencing some of what I talked about in the short interview to prepare for today, which has to do with the experience that we have in this picture, sun at the center with the earth orbiting it. And this experience that we have, that sometimes the sun is higher above us and above the celestial equator, sometimes it appears furthest below. So when the, when the Earth arrives at the place on its orbit on the left there at the summer solstice, then the sun seems to be highest above us. And then as the Earth orbits around the sun and we get to the December solstice, which is where we're headed now, then the Earth in the northern hemisphere, then the sun seems to be furthest below the celestial equator and in the work of Rudolf Steiner the description of these solstice moments and this course of the earth around the sun he likens it to a breathing process so just as the human being breathes in and out there will be around 18 respirations a minute but between each respiration there will be a pause that the earth exhibits this same respiration but the pause isn't happening every few you know every several times every minute But over the course of one year, one full rotation, we'll find one out-breath at the winter solstice, excuse me, at the summer solstice, and then an in-breath at the winter solstice. So we are, you could say, in the cycle of the year, since the time of the end of June, going toward winter solstice, where we have the deepest in-breath. I'm pointing in the opposite direction from the way it appears on this picture. So just to make that clear, because I'm used to summer solstice being up, But what's happening is the earth, the sun is below the celestial equator. So just to, to qualify that. So solstice means sun standing still. And when we breathe, of course, we're not, we don't have that hyperventilating. We are pausing in the breath before we turn. And the earth exhibits this in its relationship with the sun. So when we arrive at the solstice moments, there seems to be a pause in the position of the sun at our horizon and then it moves back in the other direction. Now, we can say summer solstice is going to happen at 6.28 a.m. on the 21st of June, but how do we know? Who's doing the observing? It used to be that those who were initiated into the sacred knowledge were the ones that would observe and would mark the moment and set the ceremony. And from the space where the observance was being made, the sacred site would be built. And there you would observe the sacred marriage, celebrate the birth, honor the dead, everything centered on where is the observance of the phenomena actually occurring. Now, the International Astronomers Union relies on something called the Universal Celestial Reference Frame in order to determine the time of the uh, the equinox and the solstice points. And this is 212 extra galactic points that are measured in order to say, now the Earth and the sun are in this relationship. So no longer is it human beings standing on the Earth looking toward the celestial world, and it's no longer things in our own galaxy. So we are really moved away from this direct experience on the Earth in order to say, now is the standing still moment. Now is the point of balance. So this next image shows these equinox moments where day and night are of equal length. And if you imagine the equator of the Earth and project it out onto this imaginary sphere, then it gives you a point of reference for where is the sun in the horizon. And although we accept that in our contemporary culture that the Earth is moving around the sun, this is a concept, our percept is quite different. We see the sun rising up in the east, going overhead, and setting in the west. Though we know that that's not what's happening. It's we who are turning east, and it gives that illusion that the sun is going overhead, rising in one place, and setting the other place. We also still give the verb of motion to the sun. We say the sun is rising, the sun is setting. We don't say the earth is turning east. And so in this place where the concept and the percept don't exactly match, that's where the mischief can enter in, in our thinking about our place in relationship to the earth and the earth in its celestial environment. So at the equinox moment, if you were to take the, you could say the equator of the earth and project it out onto the sphere, what happens is the sun appears to be directly above that equator and day and night are of equal length. So this is halfway between the solstice moments. And when you look culturally through history, you'll find the sacred celebrations happening at those points in the cycle of the year. And this can be like the waking and the sleeping in the human experience, that we awaken with the sunrise. We could say, just in order to make this analogy, we go to sleep with the sunset. So if you were to place that in the course of the year, you could say the dawn is coming in the spring and the dusk is coming in the fall. And so the earth is exhibiting this waking and sleeping as well as this respiration, the same way we have a respiration and a waking and a sleeping. So this is a very simple construct for trying to enter into a resonance with the earth, to be aware that the rhythmic rising and setting of the sun, if it were on my schedule, we would be living in a much more chaotic world than the one that we're in now, because I'm not going to bed at the same time every night, nor am I waking at the same time. But consciousness of the harmony of that rhythm that earth and sun have is staggering. If for one day that rhythm were off, it would cause a change that I think we couldn't possibly imagine. So within this context of waking and sleeping, that you could say is analogous to the equinox moments, and then the in-breath and the out-breath related to the solstice moments, we can begin to develop an idea about how might I enter into the harmony of that earth-sun relationship. Along the way, I also would be remiss if I did not mention there are the cross-quarter points, and these occur in every season. So they're the halfway point between a solstice and an equinox, or an equinox back to a solstice. We've just passed through one that... A lot of people have fun celebrating, which is um, All Hallowed Eve, or Halloween, is the eve of the cross-quarter day that comes in the fall. The next will be, in the United States, we call it Groundhog's Day. It's also referred to as Candle Mass. It's uh, the cross-quarter point in the winter, which happens around the beginning of February. Then there's May Day, which begins; at, it happens at the beginning of May. And then we also have Lamas, or Loaf Mass, which is the cross-quarter day in the summer, halfway between summer solstice and autumn equinox. And these points of turn in the season can almost be more dynamic than the actual beginning of the season. It's when we are turning away from the season's beginning toward its end and finding a moment of fulfillment in that completion and anticipating it. But always you will see there are celebrations that come at the eve of the cross quarter that are filled with mischief, The masquerade, the carnival, the dressing up in the masks or the Walpurgis night before May Day. These things that allow something to be released so that we can prepare in a more um, purified or you could even say more dignified way for the fulfillment of the season. So the cross-quarter time that happens in the winter, around the beginning of February, has to do with the inner light. And if you grow up in the United States and you celebrate Groundhog's Day or observe it, it's always, at least to me it was, very confusing. Why is it that if the groundhog sees his shadow that we would have more winter? Because the sun is out, so it should be sunny, which means we should have less winter. You know, when you're seven years old, it doesn't really make sense. But if you try to think deeply into it, it's perhaps that it's because this time of year is about the inner light. And if the light is being experienced without too soon, then that means the container must be strengthened. This is the way I understand this now it's the blessing of the candles, it's the time for not using the light, but preparing it and having it and holding it within. The spring equinox, after the spring equinox, on the way to summer solstice, we get May Day. This is a celebration of fertility and earth fertility and human fertility. Lamas, which comes in the summer, has to do with the first wheat harvest that comes in and the grinding of the wheat into flour and the baking of that flour into bread that then would be offered at the sacred site for blessing the remainder of the harvest, which fulfills in the cross-quarter day that comes in the fall, which we've just come through, which is the all-hallowed. So now to honor the sacred dead, those who have gone across this threshold. So when you put them across from each other, you can see inner light, outer light, fertility and birth, and honoring the end of the harvest and the end of the life. So this is a context within which I think it can help seasonally and just in our thought life around what is the rhythm that the earth is in. We're doing all of these, and we can flip on the lights so we don't have to abide by the waxing and waning of light in our day and in our evenings, so we can live outside of these rhythms. But this is still happening. The earth is still exhibiting its relationship to the sun in these ways. So when we look at maps, this is a a map that comes out of the 1500s that has to do with, it's representing the pre-Copernican thought about the organization of our planetary system, where it has the earth at the center with the planets and the sun going around it. So this is the geocentrism, the earth at the center. And this idea that's coming out of this kind of a picture, the idea was motivated by the understanding that every human being comes from a star. And that as you come from your star, you gather forces from the fixed stars to organize the structure of the fixed body. And from the wandering stars, the planets that exhibit a rhythm, you get the rhythm of the inner organism. And that when you look at a human being, you are seeing an entire universe, an entire structure. And it comes to this central moment of being able to unfold a biography that we align with the experience of being on the earth. And it's not necessarily a question of what is physically at the center, but what is central to the attention of Spiritual becoming, and it's what's happening on the earth. So this idea flourishes as far back as the ancient Egyptians, and this is when we have the beginning of the astrologos, the stars speaking, which we hear as the astrology. So it isn't just trying to look to the stars to make a prediction about what's going to happen in the human biography, but to read the gesture of the stars as an expression of what's coming to being on the earth this, um, this line under here, the star spoke once to human beings, comes from a verse that was given by Rudolf Steiner to his wife, Marie Steiner, in December of 1922. The entire verse is, the star spoke once to human beings. It is world destiny that they are silent now. To be aware of this silence can be pain for earthly humanity. But in this deepening silence, There grows and there ripens what human beings speak to the stars. To be aware of this speaking can become strength for spirit man. So this verse is being given in what I recognize as kind of a threefold step. First, the stars are speaking to the human being, and this informs human becoming. But then when we go through the centuries, we arrive at the 15th century, well, 1400s, when Nicholas Copernicus is conceiving this idea not one that he necessarily originated but that he took the risk of writing down which is that the earth is not fixed physically at the center of our planetary system that the earth like the other planets is actually in orbit around the sun this dramatically changes the concept around our relationship to starry worlds no longer is it what might the goddess of love and beauty be speaking when she's the morning star changes to How far away is it? What's the chemical composition of its atmosphere? How can I figure out the periodicity of its orbit? So now looking for a definition of the celestial world that's rooted in the laws of the physical, not an attempt to understand the gesture of the celestial world as an expression of the spiritual. And if we were to look at this verse from Rudolf Steiner, this is a world destiny moment. And the destiny that's bound up in it for us is that this outer dictate, it can't become a dictate. We must be freed from it so that the human being can be self-directing. The threat is that we will not remember our relationship to the living nature of the Earth and its relationship to the celestial world but that we will think of ourselves as being the single most important thing in what we do and what we say is what's what's important. So this world destiny moment is rooted in the idea of heliocentrism, where the sun takes the center and then the earth becomes a planet that is simply in orbit like the other planets around the sun. Now I wanna show you what the picture looks like when if you were to try to draw, this is the whole sky, The the line that's going straight through the center is the celestial equator that is rooted on the Earth. If you projected the Earth equator out onto the star field. So it allows us to talk about the northern celestial hemisphere and the southern celestial hemisphere. And it appears to us that the sun, the moon, and all the planets, as they are in their orbit, they only follow this path, the dotted line there, that's called the ecliptic, the plane of the ecliptic. So you're never going to see the moon in the region of the Big Dipper. You're never going to see the planet Saturn in the region of Draco the Dragon. They follow that path. And so the reason uh, the constellations of the zodiac are so important is because these 12 signs are the only regions where you're going to see the planets. So they're moving around. There There are 88 recognized constellations, but only 12 of them, or 13 if you accept Ophiuchus, are connected to that motion of the planets through our sky. So the winter solstice moment is happening for us when the sun appears to be here. So you can see it's furthest below the celestial equator. Summer solstice when the sun is highest above the celestial equator. And then the equinox moments when it's crossing the celestial equator. So this is a rhythmic relationship of the Earth to starry worlds and then what's moving through our environment celestially that we can see. But if we go back to the ancient Egyptians, now I'm gonna get a little bit into story and now build a specific picture. This is an image of the zodiac that appeared in the ceiling of, at a temple that's that called the Dindara Zodiac. It was the Hathor temple, and this was a chapel dedicated to Osiris. And here in this region, we have the lion, and just beyond the lion is the region of Virgo, and she's upright. And you'll notice that the pillars of the heavens, they're all women. And this is meant to express an understanding that it's the the feminine that holds the relationship to starry worlds. And for the ancient Egyptian culture, the being of Virgo, the maiden, that region of sky, was an upright being. But then when we move ahead, this is a map based on the imagination of the constellations from the time of Claudius Ptolemy, so the ancient Greeks. Now we see that Virgo is laying down. And then in this world destiny moment that's described by the verse from Rudolf Steiner, it's as though this being is slain. So we go from the uprightness of the Egyptians, this hearing the speaking of the stars of the Astrologos, to the beginning of the astronomia, which sees this being falling to sleep and then disappearing entirely. So there is something about the emergent consciousness of the feminine that is deeply rooted in our relationship with the stars. Just around the corner, we see this. So, we go from these feminine pillars of the star wisdom to Atlas. I've walked around it. I don't know if it's Atlas or Hercules. Atlas. I assumed Atlas because he's a titan. Just around the corner from him is his brother Prometheus, also a titan. So, now it becomes very masculine. And what happens in the story with Atlas is that temporarily, he does give the heavens to Hercules, a very male human being, as though the Greeks were trying to say, the star knowledge is always going to descend toward the human being and then you'll have to figure it out. So there's this moving from the ancient Egyptian, we've got the feminine holding the stars to the Greek, where now it's the masculine holding the stars to the time of Nicholas Copernicus, where the idea that there's a being that holds this relationship between Earth and stars, it doesn't exist. So from the astrologos to the astronomia, we would now, at least according to the way Rudolf Steiner speaks about the human relationship to starry worlds, enter what would be called the Astrosophia, the wisdom of our relationship with the stars. How can we glean from the ancients and the astrologos? through the scientific revolution and the astronomia, what is our relationship now? And that relationship is defined by our conscious participation in the conversation. It's not something being spoken to us from without, but our deeds, our activity, our dreams, our thinking, our intentions are informing the conversation. It is as though the natural world, the spiritual world, the celestial world, it waits on what the human being has to bring. So back to this picture. So this is a picture, the one I showed you before broke at Virgo. So Virgo was either on either end with Pisces in the middle. I chose this one because Virgo is right here toward the center where you can see she's drawn laying down. So the celestial equator, cuts right through in front of the region where Virgo stars are. So at the time of the spring equinox, although we will say the sun is at zero degrees of Aries on March 21st, that's in the tropical zodiac. The sidereal zodiac, which if you could actually see what's happening in the starry worlds behind the sun at the moment of equinox, we would see that the sun is actually now in front of the stars of Pisces at the time of the spring equinox. This is because the Earth is doing three motions. It's rotating on its axis, it's orbiting the sun, and it's wobbling as it orbits. So the rotation takes about 24 hours, the orbit about 365 days, the wobble takes 25,920 years. That number is really important. If the human being on average breathes 18 times a minute, there are 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, we are breathing 25,920 times every 24 hour cycle. The Earth is wobbling at a rate of 25,920 years, where it will carve a circle, you could say, in the stars that are directly overhead, so that at the time of the flourishing of the astrologos for the ancient Egyptians, the North star was Thuban in the tail of the constellation Draco the Dragon. In our age, it's Polaris in the tail of the little bear. Many hundreds of years to come, it will be the star Alderamen in the right hand of the king. So we move culturally through a consciousness, you could say, that is informed by the North Star when it's in the possession of the dragon, to the bear, to the king. There's a lot of story in that. There's a lot of architecture in that. There's a lot of literature that can come out of that. And it all has to do with the relationship of the Earth and its environment to starry worlds. So you can see on this map, I don't know how well you can see that, but the Milky Way crosses the ecliptic plane at the points of Gemini and Sagittarius. In the sidereal zodiac, when the sun comes to its summer solstice moment, it's in front of the stars of Gemini. And at its winter solstice moment, it's in the region of Sagittarius. So sun comes to Gemini, this is the full out-breath. Coming to Sagittarius, this is the full in-breath. And then Pisces and Virgo, the waking and the sleeping. So this is the moment of the spring equinox. The sun crosses the celestial equator. It's on this apparent path. We say apparently. Looks to us like it's moving, but it's actually we who are moving, and it gives us this sense that the sun is moving. When it crosses that path, then we have what we say is the spring equinox in front of the stars of Pisces. Then when we get to this autumn equinox, the sun is crossing The celestial equator is not drawn here, but it goes right through Virgo. So this is just on the opposite side. So we have the spring with the sun in front of Pisces and the fall with the sun in front of Virgo. But what's happening in the spring is that there are all these festivals of renewal that take place. There's the festival of the Passover. There's the festival of Easter. Um, And it's triggered not by the fact that the sun has just returned north of the celestial equator, but that there is a witness that the sun has returned, and that witness is the moon. The moon has to come full for you to find and really, truly date the festival of renewal that comes in the spring, because these two great lights are changing places in the celestial hemisphere. The sun steps into the northern celestial hemisphere, and the full moon will be exactly opposite the sun, and for the first time after spring equinox, it will be below the celestial equator, which means it's going to be down here in the region of Virgo. Now, if you consider Virgo the maiden, and you look culturally, you can see that there are stories about that moon, that moon which is below the feet of the virgin. In chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, there is the description of a vision. Behold, I saw a woman clothed with the sun, the moon beneath her feet, a crown of stars on her head. She was laboring to give birth. Not giving an exact rendering of it, but there's a red dragon there waiting to devour the child as soon as it's born. But then there's a mighty battle that takes place in the celestial environment. Michael and his host come and they defeat that dragon and he's cast onto the earth where we must deal with him. But just to give you an idea of what's happening in that picture, so here is this maiden. If the moon is below the celestial equator, you could say it's beneath her feet and if you were to imagine, you're not going to see this in the stars, but to imagine the uprightness of this being, the way the Egyptians saw it, you would see that she stands up and there's the constellation Corona Borealis, the starry crown. So this picture is not something you see moving. This is the human being entering into the picture and saying, I am seeing a vision. I am speaking to the stars. This would be the Sophia. This is no longer the star saying to me, psst, here's what it is. Or just, no, things are static out there. These stars have life cycle. They're not related to each other. To saying, you know, there's something to that. And if I apply my idea to it, perhaps I can see a living reality. So with the moon beneath the feet of the Virgin, you imagine it standing upright. You get the starry crown on the head, but not to overlook the serpent that's right beneath her. So this kind of an imagination, an active imagination, not an imaginary world, but trying to actually conceive of something that you don't see, but keep it rooted in something that is perceptible, this is guarded by this serpent. And so then you have to try to figure out, well, when is it the time to create this kind of an imagination or to speak to it? Because if I act too soon, then I'm going to arouse that serpent. If I wait too long, then I may become intoxicated. So what you see in the story, the Christian story, about this moment when the moon is beneath the feet of the Virgin, this cup here, crater the cup, that rests on the back of the serpent is one. It becomes an opportunity. The cup is passed. There's a community that is defined by those who are able to take of this cup. After the sacred last supper, the Christ being walks into the garden at Gethsemane and actually prays, if it be thy will, take this cup from me. Because at that moment, that serpent has been aroused, and something is going to occur that we have an opportunity to honor and participate with. But it's not without its challenge. So trying to awaken a living relationship to starry worlds has this responsibility in it to not just lay a make-believe on it, but to try to see these mighty gestures of the spiritual world that wait on the human being to participate in the picture. So the first full moon in 2019, the first moon, full moon of the spring is actually going to occur just a few hours after the spring equinox. And then a month later, we have another full moon that's going to occur, although we say it's in Aries, or excuse me, in, uh, the sun is in Aries and the moon would be opposite in Libra, it's actually going to be very close to this star Spica. So you could call that moon in the spring the moon under the feet of the Virgin. And that would then give us this picture. This picture is by Erald Rosencrantz, and it shows the woman clothed with the sun, the moon beneath her feet, the crown of stars at her head, and then here you see this serpent arising. So this is the fifth apocalyptic seal, and this is, I'm sharing it as a way to try to awaken a living imagination in relationship to where we are now relative to starry worlds. And also to point out the fact that if we live in environments where we can't see the starry worlds, we don't know how the dates and times of equinox and solstice are being determined. We don't know the difference between the sidereal and the the tropical zodiac. It can be very difficult to get to a picture like this. And maybe there's a lot of intellectualism in that, trying to figure all those pieces out. And couldn't we just breathe harmoniously and wake and sleep? But we have a responsibility to awaken not only the the mythic grandeur of these ideas, but to live as though we know it. So what's coming toward us uh, almost within a month is Comet 46P-Waternin, oh, it might be 96P, Comet Waternin, we'll call it that. It was discovered in 1948, It's a short-term periodic comet that comes through our system every five and a half years, but this year it's doing something unusual, which is that it's going to come closer to the Earth than any comet has in the 20th or so far in the 21st century. It's not closer to us than the Moon. It's not causing a threat, but this is a very important. uh, Comets are kind of like heralds. They bring a new thought, they bring a new idea, they bring, they're bring heralds of something that's going to change. Notice that the comet is going to come closest to us on December 16th, and it's in the region of Taurus stars, where we have the star cluster, of the Pleiades. The Pleiades are important in almost every culture around the world throughout history as being the point of origin. So we have a comet coming very close to the Earth, right at that point where it's also, if you look for it, you'll see Pleiades, and then you'll see this comet. It may become visible to the naked eye. I'm not sure if you could stand in Times Square and see it. It's visible now already with binoculars and telescopes, but around that time on December 16th, it may be possible to see it just with your naked eye, which really means, human being, I'm calling to you. You don't need an enhancement to experience me. So what is it bringing? Rudolf Steiner gave a very interesting lecture on the moon and comets, and in trying to establish a relationship between the different forces of sun and earth, he described in the human form, we have the head which could be, you could say is sun-like, and that the hands are more earth-like. And that with regard to the differentiation between masculine and feminine, not male and female in the gender, but as a gesture, that he related this to the difference between moon and comet and that the masculine, in regard to its relationship with the moon, is something that has come in very deeply in to physical material, and has as though in the description of the Earth evolution that comes from anthroposophy, it has been cast off because it sunk so deeply into the physical material. The comet, on the other hand, is something that comes only occasionally and hasn't entered rhythmically in enough. And so it's still kind of withholding, and it has this relationship to the more cosmic spiritual. So he likens this to the masculine with the moon, and the comet is more feminine, but not talking about male and female as human beings on the Earth, but to try to give a distinction between them. But so there is something about the feminine calling when a comet comes through. And so we are living at this time where we have an opportunity to awaken a consciousness about the role of the feminine. The ancient Egyptians saw the feminine as the point of access to knowing the stars. Then this fell asleep, then it disappeared entirely, and you could say that now this is a call to awaken that. And when we look in our culture, at least in the United States, you can see in many, many ways, in many places, how the feminine and the right relationship to the feminine is trying to emerge. So it's something that's calling from starry worlds as well. So just to end with a quote from Rudolf Steiner, in which he says, the more abundantly the harmony of the cosmos fills the soul. The more abundantly the harmony of the cosmos fills the soul, the more peace and harmony there will be on the earth. And I want to lay emphasis on the harmony because when you listen into to the description of celestial worlds that comes to us from astronomers and astrophysicists, oftentimes it's a language that's very violent. Galaxies are cannibalistic. Black holes devour things. There are asteroids that may randomly strike us. These are things that instill a sense of fear. And because our thought about our environment has a lot to do with how we engage in that environment, if we don't strive for and recognize a greater harmony, then we're going to inhibit our own processes of becoming. So the waking and sleeping of the Earth, the in-breath and the out-breath of the Earth, giving a very solid structure for our own waking and sleeping, our own in-breath and out-breath, and then out of that, Looking at this picture that comes to us has been handed down through the centuries from the ancients who heard the speaking of the stars to the time where we had to come to self-directing awareness, now to this moment where we find ourselves having once again to live in harmony with the gesture of the starry worlds. So just to close, I would like to give you a, a brief beginning of a poem from John Keats in which he's trying to describe the love relationship that happens between the goddess of the moon and a shepherd by the name of Endymion, who fell asleep in a cave. And the moon came over the hill and saw this young man asleep there, and she fell deeply in love with him. And she begged Zeus to grant him eternal sleep, that she could meet him every night in dream. And so this is just the beginning of a very long poem written by John Keats, but I'd like to end on this note because it really has this quality of what it's like to experience an unpolluted, uninhibited, beautiful night sky and to give a sense of how important it is for us to experience that regularly. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases It will never pass into nothingness, but still will keep a bower quiet for us and a sleep full of sweet dreams and peace and quiet breathing. Therefore, on every morrow, are we wreathing a flowery band to bind us to the earth. spite of despondence, of the inhuman dearth of noble natures, of the o'er-darkened gloomy ways meant for our seeking, yes, in spite of all, some shape of beauty moves away the pall from our dark spirits. Such the moon, the sun, trees old and young sprouting a shady boon for simple sheep. Such are daffodils with the green world they live in. The clear rills that for themselves a cooling covert make against the hot season. The mid-forest break, rich with a sprinkling of fair musk rose blooms. Such, too, the grandeur of the dooms we've imagined for the mighty dead. All lovely tales heard or read an endless fountain of immortal drink pouring onto us from the heaven's brink. Thank you.
0: Sound working, thank you, well Mary that was wonderful, thank Thank you you. so much. I mean it was so clear and but there was so much in it to absorb and I'm sure that everyone must have some fantastic questions to ask you. I hope so. (laughs) It was wonderful, thank you. It doesn't even have to be about this. No, that's right. Has anybody got, uh, uh, one thing I I thought was so, of the many things that you said that was so significant is now is the time that we have to step forward with our consciousness. And it's like the heavens are waiting for us to initiate Mm -hmm. and to to be conscious and to move forward. Yes,
1: and I think it's important to recognize what are we taking into sleep. Yes. Because at that point of going into sleep, we carry something to, you could say, you could call it just the dream world, you could say the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. And something is received by that world with our mood when we go into sleep. And then how aware are we before we awake of what the response is from the celestial spiritual world when we are awaking? And how can we engage with that? How can we become wakeful in those moments but then not diminish the sleep? I mean, it's a spiritual quest to become cognizant at that moment just after you've fallen asleep, just before you've awakened. This is occurring in the cycle of the year and the festival celebrations that would occur around that waking and sleeping are designed to support that in the human being. Mm -hmm. And now we need to come into that and say, okay, here is how, or with my striving, I am trying to become aware of that.
0: Right. I mean, some of the spiritual teachings say as you go to sleep, you should keep your consciousness into sleep, It's yes. is an incredibly challenging thing to do. It is very Sometimes challenging. Sometimes you're so tired you just want to pass out. You right, know, it, is, to, it is very challenging. How the many yes, <laughs> of, of us ha-
1: are aware of that practice to try to sustain consciousness yeah. when the body falls to sleep? Yeah. Or to even wake into the dream rather than out of it? but then also know the distinction between waking in a dream and actually waking up in the physical body. I mean, these are, there are challenges along the way designed to keep us aware and to not fall off into fancy. I mean, you can imagine that serpent. It's right there to challenge if you step too soon or wait too long, that the timing must be right. And how do we sense the time? We can't be <laughs> It's breathing in the rhythm. We often will say that to one another. Just breathe. Just breathe. you know, and to That's another way of saying, just find your harmony with the earth again. Mm -hmm. The earth is a living being that is supporting us. I would say with such grace that we don't even have to think about it. It does not ask of us consciousness. I have the opportunity to be out on the water a lot. I live in the Great Lakes Estate. I'm a person that's prone to motion sickness. So it's not easy for me to be on the water, but when I'm leading a group, then I forget myself. But it's interesting to think about what is the relationship of the human being to earth when you're standing on the water element, and then when you're actually standing on earth. There's something that's synchronized in our point of balance in the ear Mm -hmm. with earth element. So much so that we don't feel the motion of the earth, we can't sense it. Now when you're on water, and you sense the motion, it can throw you off. Mm-hmm. So that I, I really think of this as a, a graceful gesture of the Earth that says, I, I will bear you. you. <laughs> yes. I will bear you. You yeah. need not think of, I've got, I've got you. Mm-hmm. And that calls to mind a, a prayer that Rudolf Steiner gave. That, um, Thou, O Earth, are not alone in the world all. Thou, O Earth, with me and all the creatures on thee are together in the great world all. This comforting gesture toward Earth. And we're looking for it for ourselves. I need to know that I'm a part of everything, but the Earth also, especially because as human beings, we are cutting off the Earth from its environment. Those places where we have thrown a lot of light up into the sky, that starlight is not touching the Earth there. So when I'm in some place like Manhattan, I like to see as many stars as I can to witness them for the Earth right here, to stand, you know, in Greenwich Village and look up at Jupiter or to see whatever I can see and say, I'm bearing that to this place on the Earth. Mm -hmm. It makes a difference. Sure. Sure.
0: Does anybody like to have an observation? Yep, over there, Daniel.
2: Thank you very much for your beautiful um, explanations about the Zodiac and history. I was just um, concerned about Daylight savings time, <laughs> and the big question that's going on at these times, and also travel in the, in, from time zones, and uh, the confusion that arises when you get jet lag, or...
1: I can speak directly to that, because just prior to coming here, I was at an Aurora Summit in Minnesota, And it's interesting that we have a Northern Lights on the cover of the program for this event because I was speaking there. And Minnesota is one time zone away from where I live. So I gained an hour. And while I was there, the clocks were turned back. So I gained another hour. Then I had to come back. And I didn't really know what time it was, which hour was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So (laughs) it's. you know, to find that, and now I'm here, which is further east, although I'm in the same time zone. Where I live in Michigan, I'm at the westernmost edge of the eastern time zone, and it gets dark an hour later than it does here. And it can be really confounding. And I haven't thought, I, what I have to do is suspend thought until I can catch my breath and find myself steady enough in my geographic location then I can live into the rhythm again.
2: I, I just think it's interesting that it's legalized that we all lose an hour and then have to take it back. Right. And how confusing that is right. with the natural um, yeah, I don't. I don't know
1: exactly. if there is any kind of economic statistic about what the consequence is of that <laughs> and what would happen if we don't do that. It seems like we're at a place where we don't need to do that anymore.
0: Yeah.
3: I, it was a great presentation, thank you. I um, always love to hear about star Lords, and, and uh, but oftentimes when you hear it, it feels more like allegorical. And my question is, what would you suggest for people to become more aware of the reality of this of these uh, stories yeah. behind, which is which is pointing to a reality yeah. and certain.
1: I mean, I would say that the first step is to find out the names of the stars. How many star names do we know, each of us? And when I ask that question to a group of people, there are very few that can raise their hand after I say, how many know the names of five stars or more? Mm -hmm. The names of the stars, you could say, are something that is imposed on starry worlds by the human beings, except that many of them we've inherited from ancient cultures who heard the speaking of the stars. And in that speaking, was an inherent wisdom. And our not knowing those names, it's like not knowing the name of your neighbor and what's the interaction going to be if you haven't taken the time to say, hello, my name is Mary. It's that kind of exchange, which might seem very simple, but it's a first step. And in that step, I would pay attention to, where do I go to get that information? Do I go engage with a librarian? Do I go to the local astronomy club? Do I rely on Google? And how is that informing the cultural life, the way I get my information? Because that's going to become part of the story of my relationship to that star. And the speaking of the star names brings a certain resonance into our being. Not ever saying the names of the stars has a consequence. And many different cultures have different names for the same stars. It's not a contradiction. It's a becoming. And I would say that that's a first step also to become aware of the phenomena as they are occurring. Next year, because we have this uh, occurrence of the full moon immediately after equinox on March 21st, at least in the, I know in the Catholic Church, they're not using that moon to determine the date of Easter, but the moon that comes one full month later. And so I have a question researching this. This is the first full moon, which is the first one that's below the celestial equator. This is the one that's witnessing the return of the sun. What consequence in delaying the festival observation an entire month? So I carry those things as research questions. So it's not a direct answer, but saying, hmm, there's a phenomena. What can I experience in that? And how do I observe that? Well, the challenge
3: I find is that that it doesn't help but to you, I still feel kind of as a spectator, mm-hmm. but not as part of of what's happening. Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, I, f- listening to your presentation, what I like about it is that it constantly points that we are inside this yes. this grand, mm-hmm. you know, um, celestial happening. But yeah. yet, when we hear it, or we talk about it, we seem to be talking term- like a spectator and not as a...
1: There is this idea that we're standing outside of a, a harmonious whole looking at it as though we are not participating in it. And I would say that this comes from the way we describe it. So the first description I put up there about the universe, no mention of the human being. There's energy, there's matter, there's time, there's space. It's what's observable, what's measurable. But there's no sense, like the second slide, which is, the universe goes as far as the soul goes. I'm in that. And what we will hear from the astronomy community is a description of Earth becoming that says, in four billion years, the Earth is going to smash into the sun. This seems like a very violent end. And the it forces though the one who is saying that to step aside and say, well, it won't matter. I'm not gonna be here in four billion years. But then you've skipped <laughs> over all of this issue about, well, what does become of the human being? And rather than looking at it as, an inevitable random thing that's just gonna follow its own course without the human being, to say, human being, you're part of this becoming. It's becoming through you. It doesn't happen to you, it happens through you. So if I, if I have time, I would just give a, a story, example of this. So the ancient Greeks had the story of Andromeda. She's chained to a rock, she appears in the night sky in the Western zodiacal or, or um, astronomical tradition as the woman in chains. And the story is that her mother Cassiopeia offended the gods by saying she was more beautiful than, than the daughters of ocean. So she has to sacrifice her daughter to the ocean beast, Cetus the whale. He's on his way to devour her. Well, Perseus, there's a, a subplot. Perseus has recently slain the Medusa who has snakes for hair. If you look upon the Medusa, she'll turn you to stone. And this was not always the case. She used to bestow enlightenment, but that was in a former culture. So the Greeks said, Don't go there, it will turn you to stone. That's what the old people thought. We have a new idea now. If you look at that, it will turn you to stone. So Perseus uses this. He slays the Medusa. He has her snake head as his trophy. And he sees Andromeda about to be devoured by the whale. And he swoops down and putting the head of the Medusa in front of Cetus the whale. He turns him to stone, he frees Andromeda and they actually live happily ever after uncharacteristically for the Greeks. It's not a tragedy. They do live well afterward. So now you fast forward to what contemporary astronomers say, that the Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with the Andromeda galaxy. Sounds a lot like the whale is going to devour this woman in chains. What we don't have that the ancient Greeks had was the intervening hero of the human spirit that steps into the narrative, knows it's participating, and says it's not a foregone conclusion. That's not what's gonna happen. I can free this situation and bring about another end, but I have to know I'm part of the story. And he had to be challenged tremendously in order to know that he was part of the story. So it's not just a given. The moment we begin to awaken this, like I said, I showed that picture, something begins to stir that will challenge us in our consciousness. So it does require a certain uprightness and a willingness to trust in the ever-present help of the spiritual world to know that I might get it wrong, but that it will be adjusted So that's why I started with something that seems very simple, which is to speak the names of the stars because something begins to stir in that. And it may take a few weeks, it may take a few years, it could take a few moments. Something begins to occur in the thought life. Something appears on my path that I would not otherwise have seen. An engagement and a relationship begins to reveal itself, one that I have always been in but I didn't know it because I didn't speak the name of that with which I was engaged. Thank you. you.
0: Mary, unfortunately, we're going to have to stop now, but I believe there's opportunity after tea at some point, and I'm sure more people will have questions for you, and at tea time as well. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so, so so
1: much. Sorry, not tea
3: time. (laughs) Thank you so much. It was brilliant.